The number of women veterans has been growing steadily over the years, and so has the number of women veteran-owned entrepreneurs. The Veterans Affairs Department helps these small companies get a piece of the federal contracting business with a new 14-week course. Here with details, the Director of Women Veteran Small Business Initiatives, Michelle Gardner-Ince. Ms. Gardner-Ince, good to have you on. Likewise. Thank you. So honored. Tell us about this program. These are looking, I guess, at small companies that are women veteran-owned that are not in federal contracting and want to get into it? Correct. These are women veterans transitioning from the military, transitioning from other career areas who are seeking to start with the end in mind, meaning they are starting their business with the intention of doing government contracting. And of course, the place that's all about veterans is Department of Veteran Affairs. So you're trying to help them work not only for VA contracting, but they could apply the skills to any requirement that an agency might have. Correct. All right. So you developed a 14-week course here. Tell us what's in the course, how it gets delivered, and some of the details. It's very unique because, first of all, they got to go through various aspects from idea creation, market, determining what specific market or federal agency or product or service they wanted to offer. We went through finances. We went through government contracting all the various aspects of building a business. But what makes this unique is this course was delivered by experts from inside the government and industry. So we basically met three times a week. Monday was basically coursework with four hours there. Then on Thursday, we would have support from women in defense and the Women Business Centers for D.C., Maryland, and Virginia would provide a one-hour coaching, and then they had homework. And then we had what was like almost like a study hall on Friday where they'd have counselors from the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia Women Business Centers as well as the Department of Veteran Affairs on the line to help them with their various homework, which ended up being a business plan and strategy at the end of the course. It sounds like you were trying to help them to understand that you just don't call up a federal agency and mail in a bid, but this is a pretty arcane process, whether you're a giant corporation or a startup. That is so true. Uh, We really um, understood that taking them through this course as a veteran woman community was very key and that they feel safer in a all-female Uh, environment, learning, being vulnerable, showing their weaknesses, because many of these women, as you know, are service-disabled veterans. And so they feel very comfortable and secure being supported by their their sisters. And this all took place online, or was there some in-person components to it? No, it was all online. Uh, It started out with an idea uh, between the uh, director of the uh, Women Business Center in Washington, D.C., And then we recruited the Women Business Centers for Maryland and Virginia. So uh, there's about 2,000 women veteran-owned businesses in those three states. Wow. And how many participated in this, I guess, fair to call it a pilot issue of the course? Correct. It was a pilot. Uh, So we had about 60 women that started. There was an application process. We did uh, send them through a series of questions every Uh, military service was represented except for the uh, Coast Guard, and we even had uh, a military spouse. 
Interesting. We're speaking with Michelle Gardner-Ince. She's director of Women Veteran Small Business Initiatives in the Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization at the Veterans Affairs Department. And did you have a range of types of businesses? I imagine most of the businesses are services businesses, information technology, management type of things. Are there any manufacturers in this cohort? There were not any manufacturers, but there were companies who provide veteran home care, uh, you know, senior senior veteran home care. Uh, there was, um, um, you know, construction. There were, uh, you know, companies that provided trucking and logistics. Uh, there was a company who does document, you know, she works with uh, what would be equivalent, a uh, videographer uh, documenting the um, the stories of, of veterans and other businesses. So it, it did vary quite a bit. Are they all micro businesses, that is one or two people, or were some of them maybe established with a couple of employees? There was a couple that were insta- uh, established. And uh, w- what was amazing, we asked them to share their successes at the end of uh, the program, and 90% of them uh, were veteran certified, woman certified, as well as uh, a couple of them that were more mature but transitioning into government contracting received a couple of contracts uh, during the, the period of the uh, course or the cohort. Because before you can even apply for a contract, you have to get into SAM and you have to do a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. just establishing yourself as an entity. And I imagine the course dealt with that aspect of it, too? It did. We had the uh, Women um, uh, Certification Program and the Veteran uh, Certification Program brief them on their requirements, and uh, they were supported by uh, our, um, you know, Center for Verification and uh, Evaluation certified, helped certify them because they better understood exactly what they needed to do. And, of course, we have counselors that uh, help them along the way. And what kind of feedback did you get? That is to say, do you have information from the recipients of this information, ways you can tweak the course for the next time around? Absolutely. Uh, A couple of things they said is uh, they want more time to to interact. They want uh, to build a community. Uh, Some of them, of course, thought the course was a little long, a a little long. So as we go forward, uh, you know, in the next iteration, which will probably happen in the second half of the year, uh, we will look at maybe doing uh, some self-study and then shortening the actual, you know, course length. Any results yet? Has anyone gotten a contract or applied for one that you're aware of? Absolutely. About three of the companies, we had uh, 30 graduate. Uh, in fact, several of them have gotten contracts uh, since the, uh, the the course started and concluded. So we're very proud of that. And, um, you know, it's it's amazing because women veterans will be 20 percent of the uh, of the veteran population by the year 2040. And uh, half of all of the uh, the women that start businesses, many of them are women veterans and seem to be very successful and have a tendency to employ more veteran employees than non-veteran companies. And in your opinion, what's the biggest barrier for women businesses, women veteran-owned businesses, to getting that first federal contract? I think, one, it is uh, focus, being very focused, narrowly focused on uh, their particular market, their specific organization, their specific, you know, office, I think is one. Uh, two, I think it's uh, just access, access to 
information in an environment where they can feel comfortable learning. Because if you are, you know, you grew up in a male-dominated arena, you have a tendency to be on guard and want to make sure that, you know, you don't look vulnerable. And in a single-gender environment seems to really work, and the, and the women business centers are the perfect place for that. And then the other thing is, I would say, is just opportunity. Very specific opportunities for women veteran-owned businesses is the wave of the future. You know, they are the secret weapon, as far as I'm concerned, that this nation has yet to realize. Because when you look at the amount of uh, uh, responsibility, uh, the leadership expertise that we have, there's nothing that we can't do. We just need opportunity, access information and environment uh, to set us up for. And when I hear you say it, I really believe it, I got to tell you. And finally, what is your advice to agencies outside of VA to make sure that they themselves are creating the environment so that they don't overlook this element of contracting opportunity? Great question. To companies outside of the government, I would say create specific opportunities. And when I say opportunities, I mean contract opportunities and say we are going to develop an acquisition strategy to set aside these contracts to these caliber and types of women uh, veteran-owned businesses. Uh, Inside the government, I would say the same. You know, the challenge is uh, we're veteran first, not veteran only in the VA. So that was the catalyst of this program, is to bring women veterans and the veteran first program, women and the veteran first program together. So you know, within the VA and other federal agencies, we need a separate set-aside, you know, category within the veteran uh, uh, category. And I know uh, there's some move on that. I don't know where it is, but that would be great. And then acquisition strategies. Hold these large companies accountable for setting aside and subcontracting to women veteran-owned businesses uh, because when we empower a woman veteran, Uh, we celebrate their service and we're no longer invisible. And when does the next course take place? It will most likely be in the August, September time frame. All right. We'll be sure to make people sign up then. Michelle Gardner-Ince is Director of Women Veteran Small Business Initiatives in the Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization at Veterans Affairs. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been an honor. Thank you for showcasing women veterans, this nation's secret weapon, and national treasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.